Talking Tech, the Nordic View. Welcome. This is the third episode of Talking Tech, the Nordic View, which is a quarterly recap of the Nordic's leading VC firms, Mackie VC, EQT Ventures, and Hardcore Capital, of what went down in the European tech scene and what this means for entrepreneurs and investors looking ahead. My name is Maya Balmer, and I'm joined in the studio by Annie Coleridge, co-founder of a femtech startup, Alva Health, as well as your hosts, serial investors Ashley Lindstrom from EQT Ventures, Christian Lindegaard Jepsen from Hardcore Capital, and Paulina Martikainen from Mackie VC. Welcome. In today's episode, we're going to talk about the future of femtech. Even though the term was created only a few years back, femtech for sure has been the buzzword of the tech scene in 2020. Femtech is estimated to become a $50 billion industry by 2025. But is it truly becoming mainstream? Will femtechs be accepted by doctors and hospitals? And what would that require? And do the Nordics have a particular role to play in femtech? Also, what about mentech? Why aren't we seeing more startups and VC deals around men's sexual health? That's what we're going to discuss next. And I'd really like to begin by just discussing this idea of whether femtech really is becoming mainstream yet. Um, I mean, we have seen a huge amount of money come into it. I think the estimate that I read was sort of $800 million invested into this sector in uh, 2019, and presumably it will be more in 2020. So I kind of wanted to start with all the investors on the panel and, and just tell me, I know that uh, Hardcore obviously has natural cycles very famously, which has become a real leader in this field. But how actively are you all looking at, at sort of more deals? And, and maybe, Christian, if I can start with you, given that you have natural cycles already and then going around to speak to the others. Yeah, no, we are we are really looking. We have uh, been curious about uh, a bunch of the different areas affecting uh, female health, uh, such as menopause, for, for some while. And for me, uh, the investment in natural cycles was really kind of an eye-opener because uh, obviously I'm not female myself. So I, I needed a way to learn about the different uh, challenges and opportunities that the, the female body kind of offers in this respect, right? And I, I really learned that through participation with the team uh, at Natural. And we're very excited about the opportunity and are actively looking to make uh, additional investments in the space. And Ashley, you've, are you also looking actively at this point? Uh, yeah, I, absolutely. So our first investment in, in Femtech was also in Natural Cycles several several years ago. Uh, and as we uh, made the initial investment for us, it was it was never a question of whether or not it was mainstream, but, but rather how to get into a company that could become um, big enough, fast enough uh, to, to make the, um, the math work for, for us. And as we've been able to, to watch this team progress, we've been delighted to see many more companies emerging uh, and many referee, uh, referring to natural cycles as a, as a thought leader uh, and as role models in the space for, for really breaking ground in something that's important and, and very big. And Ashley, do you find that you know, you're getting more deals coming your way because of the association with natural cycles and because people have seen that success? Absolutely, absolutely. A, a lot of founders refer to that and, and this founding team having been able to do it and our uh, investing in that team as, as proof that we understand that this is, is a, a very big sector and of course uh, one investor should pay attention to. So absolutely. And, and, and Paulina, uh, does, does Mackie have a, a femtech investment in its portfolio yet? 
we haven't yet done our first investment in the space, but uh, personally, I'm super, super bullish on, on the femtech space and talk regularly with femtech founders. So, so I think it's, it's, uh, especially given that we have, uh, health tech companies in the portfolio and, and we really think that we can actually add some value in the industry. I think it's more like a matter of time when we, when we actually find the, the first, um, good match. And, and do you think just thinking about over the years as you've looked at this for a little while, but are you seeing more now that's in the, you know, more startups coming out of higher quality than maybe you were seeing a few years ago? Absolutely. I think uh, over the recent years, I think Femtech overall has grown to be the significant vertical and something to follow very closely. Uh, uh, I think also, I mean, there is a lot of room actually to grow further. And from an investor point of view, I think that's, uh, you know, really the Femtech's largest market opportunity in the sense that, uh, you know, the space is still in the early days. So we've seen, you know, companies that focus on periods or fertility, menopause, sexual well-being and so forth. But then at the same time, it's still, you know, approaching uh, female cycle, cycle primarily from the reproduction point of view. And I, I really see a lot of opportunities uh, in companies that also go beyond that. But but that said, we still are missing the Spotify even in the in the reproduction uh, sort of a space. So yeah, there's still some some kind of opportunity for, to find the really, really big one. A- Ashley, do, I think you had a, a comment on those lines. I just wanted to add to really add to that. I think that we're just scratching the surface with the uh, the reproductive piece, and and femtech is often synonymous with with reproductive health. But uh, as I as I hope we'll talk about later on, uh, there is so much more uh, to add uh, when we when we talk about femtech and and female health beyond reproductive health. Yeah, I think that would be a really good one to talk to, and I think we'll sort of come to it in a minute. But I think it's it's almost like the first step has to be to to even get femtech and and even the this kind of narrow reproductive focus sort of uh, accepted really by by more of the medical establishment. And I think that's the thing that would be worth spending a little bit of time talking about. How, you know, how accepted is it becoming? And, you know, are health tech companies in this space going to, you know, have some difficulties in, in, in kind of getting uh, some acknowledgement? I mean, it, you know, it's great if I'm tracking my, you know, my own sort of like if I have a tracker that would sort of show that I'm entering perimenopause, for example, but then if I go to my own GP and all of that data means nothing to them, then it's a really frustrating experience for me as a, as a user. So I just wondered whether we could, we could talk about that. And I think, Annie, um, I, I know that you've had some experiences this, of this having worked in quite a lot of femtech companies even before you, you founded Alva. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think it's a two-sided education model and you have to engage practitioners with your technology. And sometimes that can be a lot harder and a lot t- more time consuming than it is um, engaging consumers. So, you know, working at Thriver, which was at-home blood testing, was a great example of this. People would do Thriver tests with us to look at their female hormones and find something that indicated, let's say, PCOS. And then they'd go to their doctor and they'd say, that's not a real blood test. We have to do it again, which obviously for the patient or user isn't an ideal experience. But, you know, at the same time, we didn't do much kind of clinical education at Thriver. That wasn't really part of where we invested our time in the early days. And I think it is just that. It's an investment if you if you want to be a tool that clinicians can use or that clinicians trust. You have to work hard to get that trust. And I think part of that is um, real transparency about how your product worked and how it was developed and, and using clinicians to kind of co-develop it, it with you as well. And, and what are you doing differently then at Alva now with all those experiences? I mean, after having gone through that at Thriver? 
Yeah, um, you know, we've taken a very different approach from sort of day zero before we um, raised any money. We had a clinical board of advisors who really have been integral to our shaping our first products and continue to kind of challenge us on a month on month basis as to how we make it more useful both for patients, but also for clinicians kind of working with those patients. And um, that takes a lot of work and you have to really learn to speak their speak their language. And that that is something that I think is a real barrier for for founders connecting with with doctors is like using the right terminology. And I'm lucky because my my family are all doctors, so I sort of grew up around the the speak. But um, there is also always a certain point where, you know, it's useful to have a doctor in the room on on your side. So we we've invested time quite early on to kind of really clinically socialize our product, and we actually did an NHS accelerator. Although we are focused on building a direct to consumer product first, like we do here in the UK, see the NHS as like most of the market and trying to work with them in the kind of midterm is something that we we think is sensible. So we sort of thought, let's find out early about how to structure our product, how to talk to people, how to approach people and really get those internal stakeholders that will be the champions of your product. And I think that's that was a big learning coming out of that, you know, 12 hour accelerator um which which wasn't that much time to be honest but um it was that you have to have that internal buy-in to really get those pilots get people talking about your product and and gain that trust and it does take a long time yeah and and i guess anything when you say it takes a long time and it's an investment these should be kind of worrying words for um you know for your investors so i want to turn it to the investors at this point i mean how much are you worrying about the fact that um that you know some of this might take longer than than you anticipate, um, and that even if if consumers might sort of readily take to these products, there's just going to be this other piece that needs to be done also in the background. I mean, Christian, are you sort of what? How do you advise your portfolio companies or the ones that you're looking at? Well, I think in general, building a health tech investment, right? So this would be, I think, the same both for if you had men's tech or general health tech and, and then uh, femtech, right? So in general, you have to be patient. You have to build the foundation like Annie's talking about, the scientific foundation. You have to go find the right segments. It's not about bit scaling because you need to build that buy-in in the medical community or you will continue to experience friction, right? And, and you know, we've tried this with portfolio companies and, and we've also seen how much better it gets when you have a more kind of uh, engaging approach to the professionals, right? And we have to uh, respect that these people have spent their entire lives doing things in a certain way. And then when we show up and we show there's an alternative way, it's good to have a dialogue around that, right? Because naturally in this space, there should be some skepticism because it's serious stuff, right? It's not a video game. Do you think then that you have to sort of almost invest in a different way? Because as you said, it's it's not blitzscaling. So you can't necessarily throw a lot of money at it um, and get quick results. You have to invest maybe over a longer period of time, and but release money maybe more slowly. I mean, do you, do you have a different strategy for these kind of investments? Yeah, I think it's fine to to think about it a little more in the traditional venture model where you do the, the early rounds and you really check your boxes, right? You get the product market fit, you get you go engage the professional community and and you don't you don't have to I don't think I mean there's also more IPR here, basically, right? I mean there's more it's more defensible. So it's not just a first mover game, uh, like it could be in a social network or something like that. 
So I think you can build more of the traditional value components and, and just take your time, right? And some people would like it to just be fast and quick and and maybe they will experience some of the same headaches that we had along the way, right? And then kind of get into a more balanced approach. Paulina, what do you think? I mean, do you think it, it needs a kind of different mentality as an investor? Yes, in, in the sense, so I'm I'm along with the lines as, as what Annie said and Christian in the sense that I don't think the right approach, you know, differs vastly between general health tech and, and femtech uh, when it comes to these medical establishments. But but obviously then whoever or investors engaging with health tech in general needs to needs to take uh, certain things into account. But sort of uh, instead of focusing on the threats of or the sort of a li- long time horizons, I would like to sort of highlight the, the opportunities really if the femtech companies take take the clinical uh, route or, or engage with the medical establishments and not not only uh, do sort of a consumer only. So a very sort of a practical example, but uh, from the menopause space, for example. So obviously the space is booming and, and, and startups have very different approaches. Um, so there are some that, for instance, um, enable quicker access to doctors through their uh, digital platforms uh, and some also enable quicker access, for instance, to HRT, so the hormonal replacement th- uh, therapy through these doctors. But uh, even just, you know, HRT, uh, HRT today is um, very hit and miss, and then you only sort of get to the right dose by luck and uh, at first try, or are true sort of very time-consuming trial and error process. And the right dose is, you know, not the right anymore after some time as as your hormonal level fluctuates and, and so forth. So these startups that, uh, or some of these that actually take the longer route and actually aim at improving the the uh, treatment uh, results on a fundamental level, um, and and here the data really plays a plays a role. Uh, I mean, imagine you start gathering this systematic data on on HRT uh, treatment results and, and also select some, I don't know, non-hormonal treatments on or on selected menopause symptoms and, and so forth and, and go through the clinical uh, trial route where you actually validate these results. So I think here, although the consumer-only route is is a quicker way to to, to the market and, and less capital uh, intensive, I think, from an investor point of view, uh, the clinical trial route, uh, working with the medical establishment and so forth, I th- and, and the sort of a following data play that follows from there is actually extremely interesting. And, and I think that will be interesting also for, for instance, big pharma companies and so forth. So just want to highlight the opportunity sort of instead of instead of the threats. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think if, if, if the data collection is done done right, then it, it, this sector has a, a huge opportunity to kind of contribute to, um, to to medical knowledge. And I think we'll come to that in just a moment, because um, as we talk about how we could evolve femtech into something even bigger, which you alluded to. But I, I wanted to go just to Ashley quickly, because I, I, I believe you had some thoughts also on the investment question. Yeah, absolutely. So I can only echo um, what's, what's been said, uh, absolutely. And- and wanted to add that in health tech, and, and this is again broadly um, looking at health tech, not just the femtech category, the particular way that, that teams and, and entrepreneurs get access to the markets, get access to the customers and, and their particular go-to-market strategy is, is potentially even more important um, than in other categories because the stakeholder um, the stakeholder map is is quite different so on the one hand you have have uh, medical professionals like doctors and nurses uh, who know um, who know about the medicine and who care quite a lot about the, the efficacy and, and things like that and then you have the hospital uh, admins who are caring quite a lot about the budgets and then you have IT systems uh, and those teams who have of course you know other agendas and so when we look at uh, health tech companies we're very very closely uh, 
looking at how exactly are the teams going to get to market and, and how they're creating win-wins for the various stakeholders in these ecosystems. And that's tricky. Uh, and we have a lot, uh, you know, a lot of respect for the teams that have managed to, to navigate this, this complex stakeholder uh, ecosystem. But this is where I would highlight is, is, is one of the areas tech companies really have a challenge, uh, have a huge opportunity, um, but have to be very, very good if they, they want to make it off the ground. Yeah. And um, I think, you know, Annie was kind of alluding to that a little bit with, um, with with some of the things that she's had to do. I think one of the things you told me, Annie, when we spoke earlier was was just about, yeah, having to use certain kind of buzzwords that uh, will resonate, say, with uh, NHS administrators, which is all about sort of, you know, the savings aspect of, of being able to... Um, uh, to use some of these apps and, and, and so on. Yeah, to- totally. You have to get buy-in from multiple different stakeholders and you really have to understand the incentives at the different levels. And that's really complicated in a system like the NHS where the incentives aren't always um, well-structured, let's let's just say. So um, you do have to kind of know who you're talking to, do your research and like try and fit in words that, you know, they've read in these big strategy documents and they know, you know, shared care plans and things like that you know they they know that you're talking a language and they know that you're moving in the direction that they're sort of constantly being told to move into but you, it's quite a hard environment to innovate within sometimes the NHS so i think in general especially with covid you know the approach that that we um that we met on this accelerator was one that was really open to external innovation it just had to be directed in in the right way and with with patience and it, and it was really interesting because your experience of this NHS accelerator, which, you know, just didn't sound like a huge amount of time, as you say, if, if it was 12 hours over, over three months, it's not a huge uh, amount of time, sort of, it's not a kind of one of those mentoring type of accelerators, but it seemed to be all about just learning how to navigate the system. Yeah, 100%. And that's what we thought when we got onto it, you know, if it had been more of a time investment, we're so busy building that, frankly, it would have become quite difficult. But 12 hours over that course of time, you know, split between the two of us as well, was was really manageable. And it was really interesting. And we definitely came out of every session thinking we've learned a lot that is really valuable for our kind of long term strategy. And it's nice also to think long term when you're right at the start because that can get a bit lost um, when you're just in the day to day of like trying to really build your first product. So it was good to also have some reflection time on like, are we building this in the right way? You know, what do we need? What are we going to need to think about in future? And how do we structure things in a way that is sort of adaptable to kind of a different market in future potentially? Let's turn for a moment, though, to, to thinking about kind of the future, um, because you did mention thinking long term. So thinking really long term, I mean, how do we evolve, you know, just away from sort of femtech meaning, you know, periods and, and, and maybe menopause or something like that? I mean, and, and being more generally about sort of helping us understand just sort of female physiology better. And I, I was really struck when I was reading this, just how little research there has been until recently, you know, specifically into kind of female reactions. Uh, a, a lot of the drugs that we were kind of quite familiar with have, you know, not been tested on, on women. And in some cases, those have had really tragic, you know, consequences. So, um, you know, one of those drugs that uh, that everyone knows, Valium, was was famously never tested on women, but it does affect, uh, it's, it's greatly affected by a woman's menstrual cycle. So knowing that early on might have been good. And, uh, you know, and then there have been kind of others with, with 
you know, far worse consequences. So thalidomide and the effect that it had with women who were expecting obviously was a huge scandal. And there's a very similar one kind of unfolding now with the epilepsy drug sodium valparate. So, you know, there are lots of reasons why we could do a lot more to understand how specifically women's bodies react. So I'm, I'd just love to kind of hear your thoughts on, on whether you think kind of femtech can then make the, the leap into to doing some of that. Um, and, and maybe on this one, it would be good, you know, to, to come back to you, Annie, and see, you know, does, does, uh, do you think what you're doing on, on sort of menopause and perimenopause, can that, can that translate into sort of, you know, just understanding of, of, of other feminine, uh, female, particularly female uh, problems and... Yeah, I mean, definitely, I, I hope so. I mean, there's so much to do around perimenopause and menopause in terms of, you know, big data gaps. For example, perimenopause is a hugely under-researched area of women's health because it doesn't have a clear starting point. It has a clear ending point. But, you know, to, to be measuring the the perimenopause journey, it's not it's not got an easy kind of clinical place where a study could start. And so what that's led to is the majority of the kind of ways that menopause is diagnosed or considered within within general practice or with by doctors are based on kind of the postmenopausal symptom profile because you can measure what's happening then because there's a defined start point. They've their periods have stopped for a year. And you know, what we've found just through kind of collecting data at a high level um, on on our assessment is that the symptom profile of perimenopause does look quite different to the symptom profile of menopause. And that, you know, what that could mean, and I'm not going to make any large assertions, but is that we're looking at perimenopause wrong in, in primary care. We're looking for the wrong symptoms and it's not being assessed in the right way. And I think like that's just an example of one um, kind of w- women's health condition where maybe we're not looking at the right things and maybe we're not looking at the right indicators. And I do think platforms that collect a lot of data can can inform um, how we change the way we look at these conditions away from the standard model. But again, like this is a place where sort of clinical buy-in is a huge, is a kind of hugely important thing. And I mean, at, at Alva, like we are looking at uh, a similar model to, um, to what Paulina was saying. And, um, you know, focusing on on kind of HRT as part of our platform. And I we are certainly looking at building a data set that could be used in future to kind of optimize the way that we that we look at that, um, taking that drug and kind of make that better over the long term. So I think there's a, a huge amount of opportunities um, for femtech to really change the way we think about women's health conditions. And Christian, you, you've got some thoughts on this, I think. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm Danish, right? I grew up in Denmark. It's a very kind of, I would say, gender equal uh, society. But actually investing in this space was kind of an eye opener for me because it, it, you know, it really is true that there is so much more that has been done on building products for men and, you know, like even like wearables and all these different things, right? That were where women was just, it was a second thought or even not a thought on how they would fit into this. And it actually makes me excited about the opportunity because it just shows that there's probably a lot more uh, scope for, for growth than what we even see because we haven't started to really have you know large numbers of entrepreneurs uh, imagining what you could do in this area, right? Absolutely, and and Paulina, and I know you're very passionate to see femtech evolve um, in, into doing some of this. What what do you think? 
Yeah, so I absolutely, absolutely think that femtech companies have a role inside of pushing, pushing for a change. And I really, really want to highlight the fact how great it is that we already have some, some of these private companies or, or young startups who are actually really trying to start creating this change. So for instance, you know, a clue app that, that gathers data from users to help push female science forward. So they actually conduct their own research and make this data available for free and, and so forth. But also uh, sort of a, just maybe an anecdote related to this huge, huge uh, data gap and, and, and sort of the, the fact that we are sort of uh, lacking behind when it comes to female female uh, products. So I, I don't know if you actually saw the so the tweet from Fone the other day that went went viral just a few days ago, uh, according to which I don't uh, that the um, digital pregnancy testers actually have a manual analog tester inside, coupled with a few LEDs and photo sensors to read whether the manual test actually shows two or two or one lines, and and they actually lure women to invest in these digital tests in order to get more reliable results. So I think that's, that's again, although with Ashley, we were saying that I would, I would love to see uh, companies or more companies going sort of beyond the reproductive organ, organs and so forth. But again, that example sort of highlights how early days we are still and how many opportunities there, there exists for, for uh, founders and investors alike. Yeah. It, I mean, it, I just think for me, what's, what's shocking is just how, yeah, just how little research it turns out that even the, the conventional medical establishment has has um, done into to women and just you know one of the things Annie and I spoke about when we we were preparing for this call was just how it's it's important to understand what normal looks like in order to pick up sort of anything that's then abnormal and um, you know one of the things that happens when you're a woman and you get to a certain age you know which I'm approaching uh, is is you know you kind of have all these aches and pains and niggles and you know things are not quite right and you're feeling a little bit more tired than you were in your 20s um, and there's a kind of tendency for people to go, oh, well, you know, that's just, that's just, you know, you aging. And sometimes you're thinking, no, I might have a serious underlying condition, but how would I know? And and so, Annie, I was quite interested in, in again, how some of the research that you were doing into the perimenopause was, was trying to untangle, you know, what's kind of normal perimenopausal tiredness and, and what might mean that you're actually, maybe you have a thyroid condition or, you, you know, something else going on. Yeah, I think that is a complicated part of of many aspects of women's health or, or hormonal health is that, you know, some of the thi- some of the ways that your thyroid affects your body are similar to the ways your sex hormones changing would affect your body. And it is really important to look at the whole picture and try and consider the alternative conditions that it that it could be. And you know, ensuring that you kind of rule in or rule out alternatives and give the right advice based on that is like a fundamental part of, I think, what you have to do if you're taking a clinical approach to to women's health. And it kind of stands across across time too. I mean, when we were looking at younger women's health at Thriver and things like PCOS and hormone balance, you know, there's a lot of other things like stress that can be going on in people's lives that can massively affect their periods and how they feel. And it's not always that you have a hormone, like a sex hormone driven condition. It might be that there are other things in your life that have these knock on effects. And that's the sort of complicated thing I think about women's health um, in particular is there's just more hormones um, pumping around your body that are interconnected with each other. And in today's um, world, when we're all really stressed and we're all a bit tired, I think it becomes even more challenging to disentangle, you know, what could be stress, what is a hormone condition, what looks like thyroid. And you do have to think about those alternatives really carefully, especially if you're looking at any form of diagnostic, I think. 
And let's um, let's also talk about kind of geography here. You know, do you think that the Nordics have a particular role to play in this? This is, I guess, a question really to our, our Nordic investors here. But you know, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of more open society in terms of maybe having discussed some of this. Although, as Christian pointed out, it's still you know can be shockingly uneven in the way men and women's health can be treated. But but what do you think? Is this a, a region where we might be seeing the the Spotify of um, femtech come from? I would love to see that. Uh, I think that the Nordics have a, have a great position to influence um, some of the, the, the femtech growth um, and, and especially on the data side, because as you said, there's a history uh, and a culture of openness um, towards towards data and towards using digital tools to, well, they're part of your, part of your daily life. Um, but perhaps even more interesting is actually the, the way the public sector works and, and the health systems in the Nordics. So there's a history of, of public and private cooperations. Uh, there's a rich culture of, of research and, and cutting edge research, really. And so what we could see with open journal systems uh, and, and um, openness to cooperating with, with uh, startups on collecting data and using data to put into clinical environments could be absolutely something that the rest of the world would then pay attention to and, and see as uh, leaders in the space. So the Nordics have, have absolutely a, a cool starting position and something that, that we could do, which would influence the, the rest of the <laughs> markets that are, are always keeping an eye on what the Nordics are doing, whether that be in consumer or deep tech. And, and Paulina, do you, do you agree? Do you think it might be easier to do some of these things in, you know, the Nordic countries, in Finland, for example? Definitely, I hope so. So, for instance, uh, talking from the Finnish point of view, so Finland has this sort of exceptionally extensive and high quality uh, uh, social and health sector databases. So, so there is also and there is also legislation sort of supporting the use of it. So, actually, there's a new piece of like legislation here that, or for the use of health data, uh, which makes it easy to access the information while actually still respecting the like um, data privacy of individuals. So, so basically, we are aiming for this uh, one one stop shop to collect this data and distribute it securely also to both researchers and then to service developers as well. But obviously, I think it's working progress. I'm not sure how fully utilized it is yet, but but sort of uh, there there are, there is this sort of a groundwork that has been done for that. And I think that goes both ways in the sense that what's also uh, very different uh, when it comes to Nordics, or at least to Finland, is that in Finland, the patient actually owns his or her own data. Uh, and in practice, they should be able to, uh, or he or she should be able to then share this data with uh, whomever he or she prefers. Uh, can be even even uh, startups, for instance, for research purposes. So so, and and this is a huge difference, for instance, when it comes to the states, for instance, where I, I I've understood that the data is really saturated and and owned by private companies and and not the patients, and 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 really the data is not moving between different parties. So so, um, I think there should definitely be an edge in that sense when it comes to uh, Finland and, and the Nordics. And so on the data side, definitely more, you know, easier. But I'm wondering whether, you know, I think one of the boldest moves we saw recently was in, in Germany, where, the, you know, the, the state insurance company can now pay for healthcare apps. Um, are we seeing that kind of action anywhere in the in the Nordics now? Christian, do, do you have any thoughts on that? Not that I know of, actually, at this point. I think that the German law, and we have an investment there that is looking to benefit from it, is really at the forefront of developments here. And uh, and I think it would be a great thing if the if the Nordic countries would 
find inspiration in the kind of uh, south of the German border here in Denmark. But in general, I actually think that this is an area where public policy could be conducive to to the development of the market, right? I mean, a lot of what we talked about before was public-private partnerships. And I guess that, uh, you know, because we have all the structured data and we have systems that should be able to provide for reimbursement of these services, right? It's It's really about on the I think on the policy front pushing this forward like the Germans are doing um I think corona has at least in Denmark and I guess other countries also has has seen a big push for kind of online medicine right so online uh, access to your doctor and this would be a very smart kind of next step for that right so both you could see your doctor online if that is a solution right and you could get prescriptions online as well right but today we're not quite there as I understand it Okay, so some let's. I guess we follow the German experiment and see if that um, that works, and then there's a stronger platform to argue that um, other countries should adopt it as well. I suppose I suspect when it comes to the UK, it's 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 even more difficult. <laughs> so, um, I mean, Annie, did you did you think about uh, did you go for the um, the, the UK market because uh, just because it's it's big and and once you get in with the NHS, you can make an impact, or did you think about maybe? Uh, launching somewhere in the in the Nordics as an option. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we've we've ruled out like looking internationally. I mean, our focus right now is building a direct to consumer company first. So, although we we are both from the UK, which is probably why we picked this market um, initially, but we're very open minded. I think the thing that we that we do believe is like the NHS isn't a market to be ignored at the size it is, and I think it's just not. It's not a quick way. It's not a quick route to market. So it's not our kind of initial strategy. But if we want to focus on growing a large business in the UK and helping millions of women, I think it's a market that we can't just just ignore. Well, let's let's go on to talk about men tech, because I, I do find this quite intriguing. Um, and I'm going to start by putting you on the spot, Christian, as our, our only male uh, on the panel today. But but why are we not seeing more men tech companies, you know, focusing on, on specifically male problems? I have seen a few, but their their profile and their investment level is, is still relatively small. Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting question, right? I think we basically there's two things we have to separate. One is that a lot of medical research and a lot of products were built basically from men, right? But they were not per se targeting what we would say were mentic challenges, right? So the mentic challenges, the stuff that I'm seeing in this space would be we're seeing deals for erectile dysfunction. So we see a couple of those. And we've seen deals uh, in the space of kind of like fertility assessments. So basically sperm uh, quality counts and those like. So it's been really about the sexual reproductive system again. And my guess is that this is like a little bit like the menopause uh, area for women. It's taboo thing. It's a, it's one of those areas that exists. It's probably big. No one talks that much about it. And because not that many people talk about it, it's not a place where young entrepreneurs get inspired to start up. Right. So it is, I think it's probably as underdeveloped in reality as the female side, but I think it's even further behind. I just wonder whether, does that not mean that there's an even bigger opportunity here, though, in, in the sense, because if it is so taboo, and if you, for example, have, you know, suspect that your sperm quality is low or whatever, you don't really don't want to go to talk about it face to face with your doctor, but you might do something where, you know, you can analyze your own sperm count on a mobile phone in the privacy of your own house, that's going to be better. 
Absolutely. I mean, so, but the thing is, I know so little about it. And and on some of these areas, there's just so poor data that it's even hard to assess. That's where I think something like ELVA on the menopause side and natural cycles on the contraceptive side is an easier assessment because, you know, contraceptives, there is a big market for it, right? Menopause, all women go through it, right? But ED, I really don't know. It's not like something that I that I have historical knowledge about, like what the market size is. And I mean, we know something about Viagra, right? But that's really the only product I can point to in that direction at all. And Ashley, what what are you um, seeing? Are, are are you seeing any um, interesting companies in in this space? Yeah, we we are. And, and I, I'm going to say something. I think that's probably a little bit controversial, um, but I'm going to say it anyway. I think that a lot of investors would be nervous about investing in Mentech because so many of the investments and so many of the teams have been in products for men as Christian said, uh, not necessarily designed for men, but de facto, that if an investment team then goes and makes an investment that's categorically for men, uh, it will be yet another investment in a male product. Uh, and so while there's an absolute need for it, and of course we can all do the work and, and understand that, that there's a problem to be solved here, I think everyone will be looking at each other and, and saying, who, who is daring to make their investments in men tech here when there's a huge funding gap for, for female products? So I'm not saying it's the right thing, but I, I, I'm going to call us all out on that and say that we're all a little bit nervous about making an investment like that. Yeah, I think it's a, probably a fair point. And, and it, it does feel like maybe we've got so much still to do to kind of balance the, the, the gap between investments in men and women's health that, um, that maybe it doesn't feel like it's, it's the right focus for money. Yeah. Personalization at scale is really the promise of, of health tech, uh, I think. And, and that, that is men, that's women, that's elderly, that's children, that's every single different ethnicity that we could look at. We're really looking at, at personalization at scale. So when we're talking just sort of gender lines here, we're, we're, we're taking the most rudimentary division as, as we could. Um, and, and it's progress. It's all progress, right? Um, so I'm hoping that we can all find ways to invest in, in a personalization and healthcare that's that's highly customized. Christian, did you want to come back on, on Ashley's yeah, point? Yeah, yeah, just quickly. I would just say that, I mean, we also have to be careful that it doesn't become, I don't know what it would be called, like reverse discrimination or whatever, right? And and hopefully when we, when when you know, like on my fund now, we have two femtech investments. I don't think that would be a consideration anymore to make a mintech investment. Maybe because we feel that we've covered one base, it would actually seem smart to diversify and and cover other bases as well, right? So maybe that's like that's the next step in that direction. Yeah, that that would be great. <laughs> what what do you think, Paulina? Yeah, I I wanted to sort of continue on on Ashley's note in terms of uh, personalization. So I think uh, companies that really you know broaden and personalize their product for for a specific targeted user create actually much better user experiences. So. And I think there's plenty of opportunities in, in the sense that now we're talking about femtech, not so much about mentech, but then at the same time, actually many of the, uh, something that I've been speaking quite a lot about recently is that many of the sort of a general health tech products then 
again, are actually built as sort of a, in the sense that uh, man is actually used as a default when it comes to designing these products. So this means that, for instance, the underlying algorithms and so forth behind these products are actually built on biased data sets that only take into account the men. So I'm hoping that in the future, we're going to see sort of a companies that sort of a actually are transparent in terms of like who, who they're targeting. And, and in that sense, I, I hope we're also going to see just uh, way better products that are good for the people who they should be. You wrote a great op-ed for Sifted about uh, calling out some of the sort of um, wearables market for for maybe not taking uh, the, the sort of female physiology equally into account. And it just struck me that, you know, sh- maybe there's a kind of really clever deal to be done between some of the femtech companies that are collecting this, this real data and then some of these, you know, more general trackers so that they could actually uh, adjust their algorithm, you know, to understand women better. Yeah, and I, and I absolutely think that there can be also some of these wearables that, that sort of are already working very well for men. They might as well be sort of a transparent about that. And, and I mean, they're sort of a, from customer acquisition point of view, for instance, the, the cost could even go down if they actually like position the products as, as it is. So so I don't like I'm not sort of a, saying it's a bad thing to, to build the products for for men. I'm sort of more saying that it's probably better to brand uh, the product in that, that way as well. The point about the, the the fact that you know maybe we're getting too hung up on you know Ashley's point about the the fact that these labels themselves might be might be becoming unhelpful you know if if, if investors would be worried about sort of making a, a a men tech investment then I just wonder whether this this leads into this question about what the future of femtech really is going to be I mean how long are we going to need this label you know femtech because it feels like femtech should be very mainstream you know most women will have a period, you know, lots of periods in their life, uh, they will almost all have them, you know, go through the menopause. These are not necessarily, you know, this isn't a niche market. So having this kind of very niche term around it is, uh, you know, does seem a little false. I mean, how, how do you see that it would go, uh, maybe starting with you, Paulina, do, do you think that eventually it just becomes health tech? Well, let's start from the fact that I think the term femtech was coined by by the founder of Cluap because uh, she had trouble talking with investors and press um, about like periods and vagina without them plushing. So I hope that we are sort of beyond that point. But I actually think that the term as such is is not an issue. I think it for many it has become sort of a term or sort of a very um, actually um, a word in a similar manner as fintech or proc prop tech or I don't know, even a chair in, in the sense that it helps communication between parties. And, and, and as long as there's, you know, the true meaning is shared commonly, I don't, I don't see a problem in the sense. But, but I hope that the term usage is, is going to expand in a way that we don't limit ourselves to thinking that the only technology built with women in mind uh, should be, you know, centered around reproduction, for instance. Uh, Ashley, what, what do you think? Will we have, will we be using femtech in the future? Hard question. I think so, yes. Um, I think that it might might be centered around some very specific use cases, for example, around menopause, around fertility. Um, but what I do hope is that it doesn't mean that all of the other things that we've been talking about, you know, that, that clinical research doesn't involve women um, to, this, to the extent that, that it doesn't today. I think that I, I hope that, that those things actually improve in, in, the, in the mainstream in a different way. And then femtech can actually be used in, in the, for the very specific things that, that are they're used for today. But but tricky question. I think we also need to you know bring it to the masses that of course women's health should be part of mainstream products. Uh, you know it should it shouldn't be a femtech app when you talk about a fertility app in, in the Apple Watch. 
And the other thing that I wanted to kind of touch on, and, and actually maybe while we're on the point, is, you know, the kind of future for um, for femtech companies, you know, the in terms of the exit strategies. I mean, obviously, many of them are still at a very early stage and are still building and, and so on. But, you know, we've alluded a few times to the kind of the Spotify of femtech. But what do you think will be kind of a likely route? You know, will some of these, you know, will many of these actually be kind of subsumed, maybe bought by pharmaceutical companies at an early age? stage or do you know will we truly see some of them become very big and stand alone yeah i think we'll see both i certainly hope that we'll see both um but i'm actually pretty i never thought i would say this i'm actually pretty positive about the role that pharma has to play now going forward so if teams can find a way to work together with pharma and pharma so desperately needs the data sets that femtech founders are creating um, if if teams can find a way to generate these data sets at scale uh, and work together with pharma so that pharma can loop these into their drug development processes, then we might see some very interesting exits that also could be very, very large. Uh, as, as we all know, of course, pharma some of the, the biggest buyers, uh, industrial buyers on, on the market. We could see some pretty big outcomes. Uh, we also may see some, some smaller outcomes, which would be great for entrepreneurs to then maybe get back into the ecosystem. And then, of course, I do hope that we see completely new standalone companies that are, that are as big as the pharmas today that are working on products for for women as as a whole and and also for personalized medicine in in general. I think we'll see both. And Christian, what what do you kind of, how are you advising portfolio companies or companies that you're speaking to? I mean, what what way do you envision their future? Well, I think that is really a question that's up to the founders. So in general, uh, we have a dialogue with our founders about this before we invest. And if they are looking for a short-term solution, then we are not the right investors. But in reality, once, you, once you're you know, five years into this journey, that typically takes like nine to 12 years or something like that, I think it becomes a founder-driven development. Because uh, you know, if, if they continue to push for an exit at the kind of mid-stage, it's very hard as a venture capitalist to sit on the board and resist that, right? Because, I mean, are they going to lose motivation and all these things, right? So we try to encourage our founders to go for the long run, but really it will be the Annies of the world that decide if we end up having these companies sustained alone or if they just become departments of uh, Pfizer and, and other kind of pharmaceutical companies. Maybe that's a good point to turn to Annie. I mean, what, what what are your sort of plans for Alva? Yeah, I mean, not giving away too much as Christians are investor. But um, yeah, I think we're in it for the long term. You know, we want to change the way that menopause and perimenopause are treated. But we also want to enable women to live longer in good health and productivity. And that is a huge vision. There are 34 symptoms of menopause um, and barely any of them have, have really been addressed. But then there's also like conditions of healthy aging to to address after that. So we certainly didn't start Alva with a view that we'd make a kind of short or midterm exit to a pharma company. Um, I think Christian's view is like very practical and realistic. You know, things can change over time, but certainly, you know, if you ask me one of the two options you've outlined, we're in it for a big standalone company that that changes the way women age and enables them to age in good health. And and you're up for the sort of the, this is a kind of marathon, not a sprint. I mean, nine to 12 years is quite a long commitment. So are you up for that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's an important thing to always keep in, in the front of your mind, like when the pressure gets really high um, and 
especially in an environment like COVID where we've all had to adapt so much in such a short space of time to different ways of working and different ways of hiring. Like it is a marathon, not a sprint. And we always try and think in a, a long-term way as much as we can because of that. So I think we are really we are really driven towards a long-term vision because we think there's kind of fundamental shifts that can be made to improve women's health. And um and so yeah, I I have to say I'm in it for the for the marathon for sure. Um but definitely I, I need to keep training. Let's just say that. Keep on the keep on the training track, I think. Paulina, I think you have some some thoughts as well on this. Yeah, I I have to say I obviously agree that it's always about the uh, after all about the ambition of the of the founders. But but just wanted to also highlight that that uh, from a startup point of view, sort of none of the, none of the less of like what your what your uh, end goal is. I think it's always best best to actually pre- prepare and and sort of build that independent path uh, rather than prepare for for a trade sale or or partner sort of a too closely with some of the big players too early. Uh, so that way you're actually then stronger when you actually actually uh, start receiving those acquisition offers or, or when the when you start sort of seeking for those. And, and it sounds like it's probably in some ways, many of the founders that I've heard speak on this, you know, do feel very passionately about not just wanting to make money, but wanting to change, you know, they've maybe had a personal experience that's driven them to kind of want to highlight something that isn't being covered in, in current healthcare and so on. So from, from that point of view, it feels like you're sort of probably working with a group of people who are naturally very motivated for the long term. I think we're coming to the end of our time. So I wonder whether we need to kind of uh, say thank you and goodbye to all the the panelists today. It has been an interesting discussion. And I I love the fact that, you know, we can, you know, have this kind of discussion more openly now. and, And, you know, even though we've been talking a lot about femtech, but we could be, you know, we've been, we can talk openly about periods and, uh, you know, and vaginas and menopause in a way that maybe we couldn't have even 10 years ago. So this is great. Anyway, so yes, yeah, so we just have to say thank you again to Annie Coleridge, co-founder of Alva Health, Ashley Lindstrom, Christian Lindegard Jepsen, and Paulina Martikainen at Mackie VC. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Talking Tech, The Nordic View.